it was easier to control the rage and sadness that way. If I was to blame, then God could remain preserved. God could still be good. God could still be the hero of the story. If I was the one who went wrong, God was justified in leaving us to our failing devices, our less than perfect solutions. If I had done something wrong, then God was not to blame for leaving me to solve it, riddle my way free. It is a poor way to preserve God, and it failed for the last time at four in the morning when our nurse knocked on our door, our hearts waking up before our eyes, to tell us that Jack couldn't keep his oxygen saturation up above 80% without the oxygen tank we had, which was empty, without the spare tank, which was also empty. It failed for the last time when I sat in the back of the car, flying down the deserted Waco streets, Jack half awake, coughing constantly, and felt his cheeks and worried at their coolness, their pale glimmer in the passing streetlights. It failed, finally, irrevocably, when the transport team brought back a child-sized stretcher and he shrank on it, his tiny self too tired to cry anymore and we drove to the pediatric ICU in Temple. Then I realized that I had not saved God from the depths of my condemnation. Then I realized that I had not emerged unscathed, my faith intact, my heart still pure. Then I realized it had ended, whatever had been before with me and God, whatever assumptions, presumptions, whatever knowledge. Then, as we unfolded clothes, as we drove to Target for jeans, as I plugged the hospital breast pump into the PICU wall and Preston gathered labels and bottles for measuring feeds, it failed. It wasn't my fault all this had happened to us, this danger, this flying down highways for oxygen. This wasn't mine, not the longing I had for my son, for his wild life. I wanted to be the pretty woman with her pretty thoughts about God. I wanted to be the sweet and kind person who held out the mystery and declared, Be it unto me, Lord, according to thy word. I wanted to keep resuscitating the relationship I had once had, to press the empty heart just one more time, just 30 more times. But my heart lives flung up against the wailing wall, shouting at God that he owes me an explanation for this, that he owes me understanding. I am only this woman who prays short and sharp and who begs one minute and rages the next. I am only this woman who is right in the thick of the price of this great pearl of the kingdom. In his joy, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. This is a hard teaching, for you must leave behind, sell, give away even the beautiful old ways of being with God. You must empty your life of the empty metaphors you once loved and lived by. The pick you in January froze them. The silent highways burned them. The tired, fearful look in my son's eyes broke all their bones. What can I say to God? What will suffice? What has it become between us? This is a podcast that tells stories about what God is doing right now in the world. We focus on what is happening with, in, or through Christians. The Bible says in Psalm 107 verses 1 and 2, 
Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. Has the Lord redeemed you? Then speak out. Tell others he has redeemed you from your enemies. I'm your host, Emma Moore. Let's get started. Hillary Yancey is with us today. She is a writer and philosopher. She just completed her PhD in philosophy at Baylor University. Her research focused on the metaphysics of the human body, particularly bodily parthood or what makes something a body part of a human being. Is that right, Hillary? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. She is married to Preston Yancey, who is also a writer and is a priest in the Episcopal Church. They have three children, Jack, June, and Joanna. Jack was born with craniofacial microsomia. And the excerpt that Hillary just read is from her book, Forgiving God, which is about her pregnancy with Jack and then his birth. Hillary, you and Preston first found out that Jack's body was going to be different than you expected when they did his anatomy scan ultrasound, I believe. That's right. Yeah. Can you tell us what Jack's body is like and what was happening in the passage you just read when you had to rush to the hospital? Yeah, absolutely. So, well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. I am excited to talk about all of these things. So we learned at Jack's 20-week anatomy ultrasound that he had cleft lip and palate. And so they usually refer you to a slightly higher resolution, more in-depth scan at that point, which is how we got introduced to the hospital system in Temple, Texas, which is about 40 minutes from where we live in Waco. And at that ultrasound, there were indications that more was going on on the right side of his face. And what they were surmising at the time that they later confirmed is that some point early on in pregnancy, maybe even before you know you knew you were pregnant or so early that sort of it's almost happened before you can kind of be aware of it. Um, Jack had lost blood flow on the right side of his face. And when you lose blood flow in early stages of embryonic development, some things don't grow. So Jack is missing his right eye and his right external ear and the middle ear. So he has an intact inner ear, but conductive hearing loss on that side because basically the sound can't get in. He had cleft lip and palate that have had initial repairs um, but he was also, we discovered, missing a part of his upper mandible, so part of his upper jawbone, and he's missing some cheekbones. So basically, when you look at Jack's face, um, the right side looks smaller than the left. So everything is sort of just a little bit um, set back. So it's a little bit slanted and a little bit smaller, so sort of receding. And basically, that meant that... Uh, positionally, you know, babies sleep on their backs. That's what's recommended. But for Jack, his jaw isn't actually set forward enough that he can keep sort of the anatomy of his airway intact when he's sleeping, especially in uh, the supine sort of on your back position. And that led to some concerns that if we were to bring him home without having a stable airway, we would get in trouble. And so that's why Jack has a tracheostomy tube. And then sort of coupled with that, given his jaw differences, he eats through a G-button. So he had surgery for those two things. Those are kind of maybe the most obvious things about him that are different besides the structure of his face. Uh, and what I'm describing in that passage is 
something that happened uh, in a way almost incidental to Jack's differences, but he contracted RSV, which is a, just a respiratory virus. Lots of kids get it. Um, it's almost a sort of stealthy common cold, but can be worse for some kids. Um, and when you have an exposed airway, like with a trach, uh, it can just be a lot more challenging. And so in that passage, Jack had RSV and because he was sort of wheezing and coughing more, he was needing supplemental oxygen and we ran out at home. And so because when you have a kid with a trach and a G button, they're always a little bit more concerned about safety and being able to manage this kind of thing. Um, they took us to the the pediatric ICU so that he could get hooked up to oxygen and he was there for five or six days and then came home. Hmm. And just really quickly, how old is Jack now? Jack will be five in September. So he is four and three quarters. Okay. That passage that you described in it, you say that that is one of the moments. I mean, it sounds like there was probably a series of moments where God was stripping away some of the things that you had been relying on, but that moment was a big turning point for you where the way that you had wanted to see God failed. Yeah. And you say that to truly obtain the kingdom of God, you have to leave behind even the old ways of being with God. What are some of the old ways of being with God or of seeing God that you have given up? So I think, Probably the first is the idea that God is sort of this this n- nice person who who you pray to and who grants you things. I think it's hard when we engage in prayer, uh, especially petitionary prayer, when we're asking for things, not to end up falling even completely unintentionally into a kind of requesting, like God is a grantor of wishes, almost like a genie or some other kind of uh, wish fulfillment power. And I I think my understanding of God leading up to this moment, but, but even moments sort of in between this, after this, anytime there was sort of uncertainty about Jack medically or in terms of what he was going to need, how were we going to make sure he got what he needed. I had to let go of the idea that you put in a request to God and you get to just expect that God spits that request back out or fulfills it. I think I had never faced the real begging experience before, the pleading with God for things to be easy for somebody that you love, right? It's not for you. It's for your child. And so I thought of myself as someone who understood that God might not always answer you the way you expect, or God might not always give you exactly what you wanted. But that was so self-referential, right? It was about whether God would give me things that I wanted for myself. It's a very new and different experience to pray earnestly and intercede for someone else and to pray for things that feel kind of obviously good, oxygen, safety, medical stability, the right therapies, the right teachers, the right sort of environments. Um, And to realize that 
God is going to be as sort of messy and intimate and with you in those experiences as he is when it's you praying about certain things in your own life. And you're not going to get to sort of say, okay, I'm putting in this request for my son to have this kind of safety. And you're going to spit back out some sort of supernatural protection over every possible illness, every possible right skinned knee or every possible close call when you almost run into the street. It's not like that. It's so much more intimate. It's God and me in the middle of Jack's life, doing this in real time, praying in real time, walking with each other in it and not sort of God far off watching it happen. Again, in that passage that you read, you say that if you were to blame, then God could still be good. Yeah. Because you saw something that felt bad happening. Yeah. So if it was your fault, then okay, God's not to blame. But did you come out of that seeing God as good still somehow? Yes. Um, But I think what it requires in part is uh, letting go of the idea that we should calculate goodness and badness when it comes to the events of our lives or situations we find ourselves in. I think there are absolutely choices, right, that have that are good and bad, though probably hardly any choice a human being can make is fully one or fully the other. Everything has hidden cost. Everything has hidden gift. But I think for me, it, it required unsimplifying the story. So in my mind, it was like, okay, well, this seems like a bad thing happening to my kid bad things have to be accounted for. So it's somebody's fault. If I don't want it to be God's fault, then it's got to be my fault. And I've got to be able to tell a story where it's my sort of fault or responsibility. And first of all, that, that I think that's probably familiar to most of us, that kind of grasping for control of the story so that you can feel like, okay, well, I'll know what to do next time to prevent it, or I'll know what I did that caused it gives us some sort of security or reassurance. In just the same way, we sort of are quick to assign God sort of even a simplistic story of God's own activity. God did this, and so this happened, and it was good, and it was right, straightforward, end of the line. But for me, what I've come to realize is that God's goodness is, it's not as simple as an attribute that we discover through actions we think God does or doesn't take, right? Things God does or doesn't prevent, things God gives us or doesn't give us. God's goodness is much more personal. It's in God being present with us in our life. It's in God listening really intimately to the stuff that we want to tell God. I think it's, it's again, what I was saying just a couple moments ago, not keeping God far off and allowing the goodness to exist in the idea that God is dwelling with us in these situations and that that is a way to see God's goodness and release the idea that I'm going to know God is good by what God is doing. But instead, I can know God's goodness 
by how God is with me and how God is with my son. Yeah. And trusting that for your son too. That goes back to yeah. what you were saying about it's a, it's a harder step to trust that for someone else, even once you've been able to trust that for yourself. Yeah. You know, what's, what's really beautiful and, and very hard. <laughs> and I don't know if there are other parents listening to this, but actually some of the clearest words God has ever spoken to me have been a, a, a kind, but very forceful, um, don't overstep my relationship with your son. You know, I remember praying, I pray a lot in the car. I remember praying once as I was driving, I think uh, I was driving Jack to just a regular, you know, uh, well child checkup. So not one of the specialists. This was just a, are you growing, right? Are you getting taller checkup? But praying this sort of, well, God, you know, you really got to show up for our Jack and you've got to be able to do these things for Jack. And I'm expecting that, you know, sort of a, a very, do you know how much I love my son? Do you, are you going to do for him all the things I want done for him? And I really heard the voice of the Holy Spirit in my heart say, you do not know how much I love your son. Back up. <laughs> Um, and I, I, you know, I don't think it was a reprimand, like don't petition, right. Don't talk to me about Jack or don't ask me for things, but know who it is you are talking to. I'm the former of your son's body and soul and mind and heart. My love for him is not something you comprehend. So, you know, pray with that awareness. (laughs) And that's been, I think, probably what has enabled me to, you know, Jack's had a number of surgeries, um, none of which are necessarily invasive, but all of which carry risk because surgeries are risky. And every time, you know, this last time, it was uh, almost a year ago, he had to have a very routine short surgery. It's just to sort of maintain the trach site, so where the actual trach tube sits in his neck. Sometimes you get tissue buildup there. And so they go in and cauterize it, clean it up, make sure everything's as clear and, you know, secure as possible. Maybe it lasts an hour. Um, But this time Jack was old enough to wave goodbye and push the bed with the nurse um, past the door where you as the parent can't go anymore. And I remember watching, you know, he turned around, he's wearing a tiny little hospital gown, which I mean, that will just break your heart <laughs> because, you know, they look like these tiny grownups and that's, it's a sort of surreal experience, but he turned around, he's waving to me. They're letting, he's very excited. He gets to push the bed and off he goes. And I remember thinking what makes it possible for me to stand at this door and not break them down to go with him is the certainty that there is Jack, there is that nurse, and there is Jesus. And so when I stop walking, Jesus does not stop walking. Jesus goes with him into that OR. Jesus goes with him into all of the appointments, all of the places where I can't go. Jesus is not kept from going. And that's the goodness of him being with us that you're talking about. You obviously have thought a lot about what we call disability, 
mm-hmm. um, since Jack's body is different than what would be called a normal body. So there's a passage that I want you to read again from your book. It's on page 142. I'm just up to that, that little break. Sure. The day we found out that Jack had a cleft, I called my mother in the bathroom to say the words out loud without any knowledge behind them. She didn't cry on the phone with me. She asked simple questions. She told me that she loved me and Jack and Preston. She told me that we would keep doing the next obedient thing because that is who we are. When I hung up with her, I stood in front of an icon of the Good Shepherd, sobbing. What do I know about clefts, Jesus? What do I know about how this will change his life and change him? How will people look at him? What will they think? Isn't it wrong that these things are happening? Tell Jackson the story of his body. I bit my lip and tasted blood, the same blood I thought at the time that is keeping him alive. I'm sharing my blood with him, and it's my blood that's making him, building up bone and tissue and now a small gap running back through his mouth. Jax, your doctor just called us. You have a cleft lip and a cleft palate. Our bodies do unexpected things sometimes. Your lip and your palate didn't close the way we expected. I paused, swaying back and forth. But, Jax, every body is a gift from God. Yours, right in the midst of exactly how it is and what it looks like. Jesus loves. Maybe you wonder why I prayed for healing if I believe so firmly that Jack's life is not made worse by his having craniofacial microsomia. I wonder this too. Perhaps there is hypocrisy in it, and perhaps there is truth. Jesus told me to tell Jack the story of his body, and Jesus told me to get out on the water and pray. And every night after we prayed Compline and Preston fell asleep, I would whisper again, why did this happen to us? And Jesus, it must have been him, mustn't it? Spoke back. When you tell Jack the story of his body, of his life, don't leave anything out, including me. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you have come to believe about disability and about that tension of praying for healing for your son while still believing that his life isn't made worse by having craniofacial microsomia. And also, I guess, how you see Jesus' role in that. It's kind of a complicated question. Yeah. yeah. Well, so so let's take it just a couple steps at a, at a time. So I think disability is an incredibly... Uh, wide category. In some ways, I think it, it it might not even be the most helpful category. It can be helpful to think about disabilities, very broadly speaking, for purposes of petitioning for access and inclusion, for talking about sort of legal requirements and necessities, or for talking about right educational equity, things like that. But when it gets into how any individual life is affected by the particularities of a body or a mind, I think that's where just a broad category like so-and-so has a disability, right? Or so-and-so has condition fill in the blank may not actually be as helpful as 
looking at the whole of that person's life and how a particular bodily sort of way of being is integrated with the rest of who they are and how that particularly affects them in their particular situation. So I think one thing I've learned is is to move away from the idea that when you learn that so-and-so right has a particular condition. So I tell someone Jack has craniofacial microsomia or Jack has a trach. That what that should prompt is not a conclusion of, oh, so his life must be like, right? His life must be hard in these ways or his life must be bad in these ways, but instead should prompt some questions. Okay, so what does that mean for his life? What's different? What's the same? Where does the disability interact or not interact with things like his relationships with other people, his education, how he moves through the world, right? The things that are available to him and maybe the things that aren't yet available to him. I think part of what we're invited into in all of scripture, and I think this is maybe a part of how I can get to how I see Jesus' role in this, is when we look at how Jesus interacts with individuals Um, particularly in, not exclusively though, the healing narratives of the Gospels, Jesus talks with them. So often Jesus asks them questions. Sometimes Jesus says, you know, right, what do you want? Which to me suggests that it's not a given that that individual needs healing, right? But that actually what Jesus is doing is saying, engage with me, talk with me about your situation, your context, your social environment, right? When we think about where people are situated, there's so much around us that shapes how our bodies are seen by others, are treated by others. Um, And this applies, right, of course, much more widely than just disability. This is true of race and gender and all sorts of other things, right? That what it is to know a part of someone's identity is to know through their own experiences, their own stories, or our own more detailed, gentle observations of their particular life, not a sort of blanket, I know you have this sort of condition, and therefore I know something about your quality of life. I know something about sort of whether you're going to be healed, right, on the last day, or whether you're going to persist as you are. And I think that's what Jesus is doing when he engages with those people in the Gospels. Jesus is inviting us to notice how our bodies interact with our social world and with our relationships and how those things play off of each other. And part of what I love so much about thinking about these questions uh, in philosophy is that what it's enabled me to do is think about how I want my son to be equipped to notice in his own life and tell his own story about how his disabilities, how his bodily particularities interact with who he is and shape who he is, but also shape right how he experiences the world. Absolutely. And that sounds like that's part of, uh, so this is a little bit of an aside, but uh, the other day, one of my prayers for the day was that I would 
I feel a little ashamed saying this, that I needed to ask for this, but that I would be able to see my children as people Mm -hmm. and actually love them as people instead of just seeing them as beings that I'm supposed to be training or caring for. And it sounds like that's part of what you're talking about with Jack or with anyone whose whose physical experience of life um, might be different than ours. Exactly. Well, and and here's um, so Elizabeth Barnes is one of my very favorite philosophers. She has taught me so much about disability. Um, she has a book called The Minority Body, which I recommend to everyone. It's very readable and it's really good philosophy. Um, but one of the things she talks about in that book and in some of her other writing on disability is the idea that um, in and of itself, disability, at least physical disability, she doesn't necessarily try to tackle um, cognitive disabilities or behavioral differences, but physical disabilities are differences, right? They're, they're realities, they're bodily realities. They wouldn't completely disappear if every part of society were fully inclusive and accessible. They are bodily realities, but they are on their surface when we take them by themselves and consider them just for what they are, differences. And where the sort of value language, is it good to have this? Is it bad to have this? Does it benefit you? Does it cost you? That comes in when we start to see how that difference is interacting with the world, how the world sees that difference how family or friends see that, right? What you do have access to or what you might not have access to. And what I love about this view is that it, it permits there to be a wide range of experiences of disability. It permits a person who might have a certain bodily condition to experience it in a way very different from someone who has the same condition in a different social context or setting to experience it. And it preserves the power for, right, for my Jack to, over the course of his life, experience his disability very differently. So it might be that he experiences challenges in school or in access to services at one time that change in a couple of years. Or something that's a particular challenge right now changes drastically and becomes much easier later, vice versa. It, it allows there to be a certain kind of fluidity to what the disability, what the bodily reality means to your life overall, over the course of that life, and between one life and another. And again, it's that putting things in in a personal context, not ignoring, right, not seeing past the disability, like it's not there, and there's a person behind it, right, the disability sort of slapped onto their identity. But instead, seeing it as a, a person who has all of these different dimensions, one of which is, is a bodily dimension. And for me, this has been true in my own life with depression and anxiety, which are both sort of mental health realities that I deal with. And starting to realize that these are as complex and as shifting as all the rest of my bodily sort of life, right? As we get older, experiencing pregnancy and postpartum, all of that's right. Our bodies change all the time. And there's freedom for us to notice and to, to welcome how our bodies move through the world differently. And that's, you know, something I think 
we just have to keep seeing as we start to think better and more carefully about bodies that might have at one time been considered right abnormal or disabled in a pejorative negative sense. You already touched on it a little bit, but since you wrote Forgiving God, that happened, you know, as you said, Jack is four and a half or almost five. Since then, you've had two more children, the youngest of whom is six months old, and you have continued in your relationship with God and being with God. And you also have faced some struggles such as depression and anxiety. How are you seeing God now or how is he interacting with you now as a, as a mom and as a person? Man, what a good question. I think one of the best ways I could think of to describe it is, is that uh, I feel that I see God accompanying me into my motherhood. So I think one of the, the greatest places of peace I came to in my relationship with God, both through the process of writing the book, but also just through just the act of like continuing to live (laughs) into being a mom, being Jack's mom, eventually having my two daughters is that what I, uh, the piece is that, okay, God, like we're in this together. Um, You're not far off. I don't expect anymore to get complete explanations from God. I think I was holding out for a while that I I wouldn't sort of face God. I wouldn't look at God. I wouldn't try to see God until I felt like God had written me some sort of like definitive letter <laughs> that explained why this happened to us, why, you know, this had happened to Jack and what God was going to do about it or some sort of promise I could extract from God that it was always going to be easy or good from here on out. And at some point, I think God, God sort of said, you know, don't, don't wait for that. I'm capable of handling your complex emotions, your complex questions. And, and you can't wait to re-engage me until I answer you in this way, because I'm not going to answer you in that way, (laughs) you know? And I think, you know, a beautiful thing about being in relationship with God is that there is a freedom to show up or not show up. And, you know, I, I felt like God said, you know, you can show up and we can, we can do this. We can do this walking together, but you're going to have to let go of your sort of caveats for that walk. You can't say, I'm going to walk with you, but only if you do, right? Or only if you keep my son from having this happen, or only if you make sure that my daughters have this, this, and this, or, right? It's going to have to be sort of unconditional. And we're going to cut this covenant that we're going to walk together. So I find that that's, that's what it is to see God now is to notice the walking with that in my parenting, God is with me, that in my reflections or uncertainty about my next steps, right, as I finished my PhD, God is with me. Questions that go unanswered. What am I going to write about next? Am I going to write another book, right? All of these questions to see 
those things as part of my relationship with God, but I'm not waiting for God to give me an answer before we do this walking together. Thank you, Hillary. It has really just been such a joy. Thank you for talking with me and for having put so much thought into these questions and being able to articulate so clearly um, some really, I think, wonderful and true thoughts on what it means to be people with physical bodies and how we interact with God as people in bodies. Yeah, thank you. That concludes our interview with Hilary Yancey, an author, philosopher, and obviously a mother. Her book is called Forgiving God, and it's available pretty much wherever books are sold, but I'll put a link to a few of those places on our website on the episodes page. I also saw that it is available on Audible, so if you like audiobooks and you'd love to hear Hillary read her book to you, you can find it on Audible. You can also follow Hillary on Instagram at Hillary Yancey. Psalm 107 verse 43 says about stories like this, those who are wise will take all this to heart. They will see in our history, the faithful love of the Lord. If you have a story you'd like to share, or you know of someone who does, please go to our website at www.seeinggodpodcast.wordpress.com and click on submit a story. God is doing things all over in all of his people. And we want to know about as many stories as possible. So please do go to the website and submit a story. Also, we would love to hear your thoughts on this episode or the podcast in general. You can tweet us at God Seeing or comment on our Instagram or Facebook pages at Seeing God Podcast. You can also email us at seeinggodpodcast at gmail.com. This episode was produced in the studios at Lancaster Bible College. I'm Emma Moore. Our interviewer is Jan Gebert. Our engineer is George Haynes. And our show music is Siberia by Dmitry Lukyanov. Thanks for listening to this episode of Seeing God. Seeing God.